0: Last six weeks, we've been just really digging into this truth, and hopefully our goal is that you translate this this, this, this essence, this wisdom, from theology to reality. And hopefully you understand that the basis, the essence of our faith is not outside in, but inside out. Think about that for a second. We are not defined by our external actions, rather... What we really need is an internal union with Jesus that causes transformational change in the nature of who we are, which naturally produce external results. Okay? That's what it looks like for us to be united with Jesus. Now, this all hinges on one important element, being intimate with Jesus, intimacy with Jesus. There are great promises and blessings that come from this great intimacy with Jesus. Just in case you forget, I'm going to remind you real quick, some of these blessings and promises, including we have access to the presence of God. Now, I didn't mention this in the first service, but second service, I feel like I need to. You, whether you realize it or know it or not, your deepest need is the presence of God. Your deepest need is not food. Your deepest need is not water. Your deepest need is not marriage or or a companion or wealth or comfort or success or vision or ambition. All those are great needs. Your deepest need is the presence of God. This is one of the greatest blessings known in the history of mankind is the presence of God. That's one of the, the, the promise and the blessing we have through unity with Jesus. We also have access to the spirit of God. His Holy Spirit, we have access to His giftings, which allow us to bear fruits, and we have access to the transformational power of Jesus Christ to give us a brand new nature. Like Pastor Ron said, last week Pastor Aaron talked about remaining, this week we're going to talk about responding, what are our appropriate response to what Jesus has done. So I'm going to go to our text in Second Peter chapter 1. Try to meet me there. Let's read it together. By his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. We have received all of this by coming to know him, the one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. And because of his glory and excellence, he has given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you to share his divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. This is what we just talked about. These are the awesome promises of God. Verse 5 In view of all this, make every effort to respond to God's promise. Supplement your faith with generous provision of moral excellence, moral excellence with knowledge, knowledge with self control, self control, patient endurance, patient endurance with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love for everyone. The more you grow like this, the more productive and useful you will be in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But those who fail to develop this way are short-sighted or blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their old sins. So dear brothers and sisters, work hard to prove that you really are among those God has called and chosen. Do these things and you will never fall away. Then God will give you a grand entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I want to make three very simple points this morning. Or answer three simple questions. The first one is, how do do we respond i want to talk about what is the appropriate respond response to the promises of god the second question i want to answer is what happened if you fail to respond the last question i want to answer is why should we respond why It's the why it's the impetus behind why we should respond so the first point how do we respond verse 5 peter says this in view of all this promise make every effort to respond to God's promise. So how do we respond? With great effort. I think we have made it pretty clear that the promise given by God is not based on what you have done or what you can do. You didn't earn those promises. You didn't earn your adoption, okay? Let's be clear. Jesus didn't go to an adoption agency and say, hey, give me the best behaving kid in here. I think sometimes we think that. If he had done that, we are all be in trouble. Jesus met us in our deepest sin, deepest wrath, deep wretchedness. He met us there and says, come into my family. We have nothing to do with our own adoption. However, that doesn't mean that after our adoption, after we have in, been invited into the kingdom of God, into the mansion, we just sit on his couch and do nothing but watch TV all day. Sometimes I feel like Christians especially in Christians in America, we're so afraid of toting the line of legalism or being called or labeled as legalistic that we feel like putting effort and exercising spiritual discipline or denying ourselves or living a consecrated life is beneath the gospel. Now, there's another, also another branch And there's another group of people who have put great effort into their pursuit, into their pursuit for for producing fruit for Jesus. They have worked hard, but they end up being tired and burned out. I understand all that too. All of this is giving effort a bad name. Somehow, effort and gospel doesn't come together. And I want to bring some clarity to this situation simply because I have struggled deeply with this idea of putting effort in. Let me explain my journey. Uh, some of you guys know this, m- many of you guys don't. Um, one year out of college, I felt called to be a missionary to Taiwan. I was a church planner to go to Taiwan. I was full of zeal and ambition. I'm generally a pretty hard-working guy, if I'm properly motivated. Um, so I, c- I kind of had zeal and passion anyways. And when I went through training to do this mission thing, man, they stoked a fire. I mean, when we were in training, they were like, yeah, you can do this. You can take over the world. They just, you know, they poured gasoline on our fire. So when I landed in Taiwan, got off airplane, I took off running. I mean, I was like, it's time. Let's do this. I'm going to put every effort I have in to bear fruit for Jesus. I shared the gospel, read my Bible, did Bible study, preach, pray, all that jazz. And guess what? In the first couple months I was there, I have shared the gospel with over 100 people. I know that because I kept count. Seriously. However, shortly afterwards, I hit a wall. Nobody was responding. People in Taiwan did not get the memo of how ambitious I was. People in Taiwan did not get the memo that I had a vision and a dream for God. That I was doing great things for God. How dare they? But it wasn't just that. I felt the intimacy around me, the relationships around me were all eroding. I started to get on each other's nerves. Other missionaries, they got on my nerves. I got on their nerves. But more than even that, I started to feel an erosion of my relationship with Jesus. The worship songs that used to bring me so much joy start to not feel that way anymore. The sermons that I used to love, now I'm like, are you going to preach about that again? I remember after one disappointing outing evangelism outing ministry outing i came home defeated lonely and the last thing i felt was being united with jesus i don't know if that resonates with you but that was my experience this was when i first became familiar with this concept the concept of producing rotting fruits fruits that rot think about this for a second Every single fruit that you buy, that you can buy, like from grocery stores, by definition are rotting fruits, right? It doesn't matter how fresh they look right now. It doesn't matter how good they smell. They are in the process of rotting, dying, disintegrating. Just a matter of time. Every single fruit is rotting fruits. It's normal. It's based on our own effort, our own ability. That's what we produce. Even with our best efforts... We simply can only produce the best rotting fruits. Does that make sense? Normal human effort produced normal fruits, which by definition are rotting. And on the mission field, I realized for the first time in my life, I hate producing rotting fruits. I hate it. I hate producing fruit that don't last. That for a while may seem good, might smell good, might taste good, but eventually it's disintegrated. It doesn't produce any fruit in the end. What about you? Anybody fans of rotten fruits? Is there anything more gross than rotting fruits? You know the back of the fridge thing, you got a mango or the apple sitting back there that you forgot about because covered up by the milk, and when, by the time you discover it's like flies all over, there's like stuff growing oozing out. It's one of the few garbage that I have to bag it in plastic bag before I bag it, put it in the garbage can. You guys know what I'm talking about. That's how girls rotting through this. How about you? Have you worked so hard using your own effort trying to produce fruit on your finances? That doesn't matter how hard you work. There's like a hole in your pocket. Whatever comes in, just doesn't, it doesn't matter how much comes in, more goes out. Or or it doesn't matter how hard you work to accumulate in your bank account. It just doesn't fulfill the desires, the deep needs of your heart. That's what I call rotting fruits. Or you work so hard with your relationship with your loved ones, trying to appease them, grow them, get better, but you never get to the heart of the issue, and there's no real peace in your family. What about this? Sin patterns that you deeply push away, you suppress, you work hard to get rid of, but whenever you get weary and tired, those addictions come crawling back into your life. How about this one? When you love, when you try to go love and minister to other people, but every time, inevitably, when these people you're loving, these broken people you're trying to love, when they let you down, you realize you could not respond in love because really it's still all about you. It's still about your insecurities. It's about your effort, your abilities. This is what I call rotting fruits. The reason we get burned out, is because we put all our efforts, our energy, our resource, our time in producing rotting fruits. If you're tired of producing rotten fruits, I want to invite you once again with a different advice to, to, to read John chapter 15. John chapter 15. Yes, I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I am them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Later Jesus says, I have called you, I have appointed you to bear fruits, fruits that will last. Think about lasting fruit for a second. Fruits that will never go bad. Think about that banana that could be in your kitchen when it's like 100 degrees, but it will not rot, it will not go bad. Think about that orange that you forgot and left in the back of your car when it's negative 10 degrees, but it never freezes doesn't matter how long it lasts. When you cut it open, it smells great. It brings refreshing to your soul. That's what I'm talking about, lasting fruit. Have any of you ever seen lasting fruit? Can you buy lasting fruit in the grocery store? You cannot because it's not physical. It's not tangible. Lasting fruit is supernatural. And that's just my whole point. The only way we can get lasting fruit is through the supernatural. You giving yourself 150%, putting all your efforts in, cannot produce lasting fruit. Only from the supernatural can you produce supernatural fruit. Lasting fruit can only come from God. So this is my point. This is what I'm learning. I'm still trying to learn. I'm still struggling to learn. One of the hardest lessons I have to learn is to take all the energy, all the resource, all the focus, all the time I have to not focus on producing, but focus on remaining. Say it one more time. To take everything you have, all the zeal, all the effort, all the talent you have, and focus not on the producing side, but focus on the remaining Do you know how hard that is for someone who's a go-getter? Someone who loves producing, who loves doing? This is the challenge that remains with us today. Now, here's the deceptive part, okay? The word remaining, it doesn't sound like an action verb, right? Like remain. It's not a sexy verb. When someone says, hey, Pastor Andrew, what did you do this week? What I like to say, what sounds good to say, what is sexy to say is, why well, I healed three marriages, cast out ten demons, preached a couple crusades, a bunch of people got saved, preached at the megachurch, bam, I was an action figure, I got a bunch of stuff done. doesn't sound so cool or so sexy when you say, you know what, I just spent a lot of time praying and just spent time with Jesus today. You did what? That's what you did? I mean, that's the stuff that goes through pastor's head. It doesn't sound like an action verb. But for anyone who has actually truly focused on remaining before, they will realize that the devil will let you have your religious activities. But when you actually focus on remaining, he will unleash the forces of hell to keep that from happening. We were talking, I was talking with a group of men about remaining... Holtan was in the group. He mentioned this example. It's still in my head. I love it. He says, the devil let me have my you know, Christian business or have my hire a couple Christian people or whatever. But whenever I focus on remaining, it's like the alarm goes out in, in, the, in the fire station of hell. And all these little devils in their costumes jump on the fire poles and roll down the pole and, and launch on their fire truck. I love that imagery because that's exactly what happens. If you don't believe me, if you think remaining is being passive, tr- try it. I dare you. Just try it. I challenge, I challenge a couple men, several men, I'm trying to find my notes, to practice remaining. I said, hey, I want, what, I, what I want you guys to do is to spend seven days straight, not just doing your devotions, practice remaining, being the presence of God in the presence of God. Once I start doing that and doing that myself, my kids got sick. They're still sick. My wife got sick. I got hurt. Furnaces went out in the houses. The car battery went out. I injured this. This happened. This happened. For the last two weeks, it was crazy. And you can see that's coincidence. But in my own spirit, I know what was going on. Because I made a covenant to say, I'm going to remain. Well, the devil says, hey, I'm going to wake your son up 3 o'clock throwing up. So you're waking up two, three times in the middle of the night. Are you still going to remain the next morning? I'm like, I'm up anyways. 4 o'clock. I might as well remain. I mean, this is as real as it gets. You know why he's trying to keep you from remaining? It's because when you remain, you are tapping into the supernatural essence, the sap that Pastor Ron was talking about. And then you will bear lasting fruit. If you're sick of rotting fruits, again, rotting fruits might look good for a season, but eventually they will rot. You know what you're talking about. The Holy Spirit is speaking to you right now. He's showing you what is lasting fruit. What you really desire is fruit that will last. If you long for lasting fruit, practice remaining. This is one of those awesome paradoxes of the Bible, right? Jesus says, if you want to live, you must. If you want to be first, you must be. Jesus said, if you want to be a leader, you better go watch some stinky feats. Okay? He's saying, if you want to produce lasting fruit, forget about producing. Focus on remaining. There's so much more we can talk about this. I want to just give you some very practical nuts and bolts of remaining. I looked up remain. I'm no Greek scholar, but I looked up the word for Greek uh, for remaining Greek. It's the word mininate. Mininate. And Strong's Concordance gave some words to kind of describe the meaning. The three words I saw was abide, stay, and wait. I thought these are three great things uh, as a starting point to learn how to remain. The first word is abide. Abide means to accept or act in accordance of. For example, you would say abide by these contracts. Well, I'm going to abide in these agreements. You go with Uh, this according you go with someone else's way. To me, this is one of the strongest obstacles to remaining in Jesus. The reason for this is is that as you get closer to Jesus, as you get more intimate with Jesus, guess what's going to happen? There are going to be more and more disagreements between you and Jesus. Think about any relationship. Think about when you're first courting your husband and your wife, you're starting to get to know each other, you're just dating. At first, it's all rainbows and unicorns. Everything's going on great. You think the best of them. You're thinking, wow, man, they, they must be the most lovely person. They must love everything about me until you get to know them a little bit more. And you're like, whoa, there's a lot of things that we disagree about. Fast forward to when we're married, and you're like, we don't even roll our toothpaste the same way. To this day, my wife and I have two separate toothpaste in our bathroom because she can't stand how I don't even roll it. I just squeeze it. So you go to my bathroom, literally there's like one mutated looking toothpaste that's like half dead, and then my wife's got her like neat little toothpaste roll from the back end, right? But that's what relationship is, right? As you get to know each other better, there will be more differences. It's the same thing in the church. As you get uh, deeper and more connected in the church, you're going to get more disagreement. There are going to be more offenses. There are going to be issues that comes up that you don't understand, you don't like. That's the nature of relationships, that's what happens. You can't run from it. You deal with it correctly. I said, this more, I said this many times before. Love and loyalty is not even proven until there is a disagreement, until there's an offense. When my wife and I are doing well, we're getting along great, there's no love being demonstrated. Love is demonstrated when she and I disagree, when I'm offended by her. Does that make sense? When my kid is cute and happy and, and asleep, you know, sometimes the kids are the cutest when they're asleep. I'm just loving something that's cute. I'm not exercising love. It's when my kid just woke up and puked all over everything, then it's when I'm exercising love. Does that make sense? We as church need to grow up to realize conflict is not a bad thing. Offense is not a bad thing. If you deal with it correctly, it leads to greater intimacy. Side point going back to this point I'm making right now, same thing with our relationship with Jesus. As we get closer and closer to Jesus, guess what? There are going to be disagreements. There will be things that he's talking about, he had talked about in the scripture, or he's still speaking to you that's going to offend your 21st century sensibilities. I'll be honest. I disagree with Jesus like all the time. You really want me to say this, God? Do you really want me to go in this direction? People think pastors are just getting along with Jesus is great. Are you kidding me? I'm being challenged constantly beyond my limits. The secret to me and Jesus is not we always agree. It's what we do when I disagree with him. Ask any pastor. Ask Pastor Ron. Pastor Ron, you got some disagreements with Jesus? <laughs> I heard some stories. There's some epic battles there. Every man, look in the Bible. Look in the Bible. There's some epic battles there. But what do we do when we hit a disagreement? We choose to abide. We say, God. My wisdom, my knowledge, my experience, my emotions are incomparable to yours. I'm going to abide with you. That's the first step, the first step to remaining Jesus. Second step is to stay. Second word is stay. I'm speaking to, th- to those with spiritual ADHD. This is one of the hardest things to do, to sit in his presence. Most men I know cannot do this without practice. Notice I say practice. Practice. In other words, you got to get better at it by practicing. It's not one of those things like, oh, I'm just not good at it. No, you got to practice it. See, we men sometimes see ourselves as action figures. We have convinced ourselves that action equals productivity. Action equals productivity. Not true. You know what the truth is? Can you guys handle the truth? Can you guys handle the truth? The truth is we have lived a life Defined by what we do. So when God calls us to sit in his presence and be still, we can't handle it. Our insecurity rise up. And we say, God, can I do something for you? No, son. No, daughter. Sit and just be with me. But but I can't just be with you. I gotta do something. I gotta I gotta fix something. I gotta chase something. I gotta fight something. No. Sit and just be in my presence. I'm I'm preaching to myself. This is one of my hardest struggles. Check out what David said, Psalm 16. You will show me the way of life, granting me the joy of your presence and the pleasure of living with you forever. David is an action figure if, there's, if there ever was one. He's a giant slayer. But David would much rather be in the pleasure and the presence of his creator, his lover, than go fight Goliath. I'm going to ask you the question. Do you rather fight Goliath or do you rather be in the presence of God? If we're real of ourselves, we're chasing Goliath left and right. Even the Goliath that we cannot beat on our own strength. Because we are so scared about staying in the presence of God. So we have reduced our devotional time to a checklist. I want to challenge you. When you spend time with Jesus, beyond just the checklist, how about just stay and wait and listen? Just 10 minutes. Just be in his presence and just listen. Just be with him. Which leads to my next point, which is the word wait. Wait, wait, wait. Oh, my goodness. There's a four-letter word that really gets me to my heart. It's the word wait. Waiting on God demonstrates honor, humility, and check this out. It demonstrates faith. When someone waits on me, they're showing me deference. Deference. They're humbling themselves to say, I'm going to accommodate your schedule. But check this out. They're demonstrating trust in me because they're saying whatever I'm waiting for is worth it. You practice faith when you wait on someone. So this is what you do. You come before God's presence. You don't hear God's voice. Wait on him. You don't see him move. Wait on him. You don't even feel his presence. Wait on him. Your feelings are going crazy. You want to do something. You want to check your phone. You want, to, you want to check something. You want to check your email. No. Wait on him. Abide, stay, and wait. It is out of this intimacy comes vision, direction, wisdom, wisdom to them which we can move. But check this out. Or not move. There's so many times out of remaining him, God says, I will fight the battle for you. I will fight the battle for you. How many times in, in the history of Israelites when they went not going to fight a battle and they got there and the enemy's all dead already or they already ran away because God has moved on their behalf. I think we need to aspire to be a church that remains Putting all your effort and your energy on remaining in, in Jesus is the only appropriate way to respond. So answering that first question what great effort. Not great effort in producing fruit, but great effort in remaining in Jesus. The second point, the second question I want to answer is what happens when we fail to respond? This is really a warning. Verse 9, he says, But those who fail to redevelop in this way are short-sighted or blind forgetting that they have been cleansed from their old sin. There is a distinct possibility in the face of great blessing and promises, in the face of a life that you get to live in the presence of a God, that there are many people who will say, I am not going to respond. I choose to not respond to this call. It happened back in the first century church with Peter. It's happening today. It's happening all throughout the world. There will be people in churches that says, great message, I'm not going to respond. And this is what Peter says. He says, if you fail to respond, you are short-sighted or blind, meaning that you will choose instant gratification, then the, the greater delayed gratification of, of finding your presence and your needs met in Jesus Christ. And he said, as a result, you will forget how miserable you once were in your sin, and you will inevitably go back there. So if you are not moving forward in your faith, you don't get to stay still. There's no status quo. You will move back to your sins. Because that's what happened. Because you will forget. Proverbs says, as a dog goes back to his vomit, what well, a fool goes back to his folly. That's what he's talking about. You know, I've been in ministry. I've been pastoring here for a couple years. But I've been in ministry for decades. And I've learned that you can never underestimate a person's ability to forget how bad things were. You remember The Israelites. For generations, they were in Egypt. The Egyptians were not very nice to them. They enslaved them to build the pyramids. Um, They beat them. They tortured them. And and check check this out. They killed their firstborn sons. If someone killed my firstborn son, I will probably remember that. But, But they cried to God. said, God, save us, save us. So God delivered them. Remember 10 plagues, parting the Red Sea, great deliverance. And they get out in the wilderness, and the first sign of some trouble, some hardship, some confusion, some uh, needing for faith and trust, they said, Oh, remember how great it was back in Egypt? When we get to sit around and eat meats to our pleasure. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? They so quickly forgot about the people who killed their sons. That is the power for people to forget. Sometimes I feel like our job as pastors is simply reduced to be an alarm clock, to be a Google reminder. You know, you set those reminders. It's like, Google, remind me of appointment at 2 o'clock. Pastor, set me a reminder. Our job is this, to remind you that God is good and your sins are terrible. I don't know how many times to say, hey, remember when we had this talk like a couple years ago, and you were miserable in your sins, you're going back there again. Oh, yeah, that was pretty bad, huh? Are you kidding me? I remember how bad it was, and that wasn't even you. I felt the weight of your sin, and I wasn't even living it. Are you kidding me? So I'm here today to remind you God is good, sin bad. Simple reminder. You're welcome, you can... (laughs) Being a pastor is reduced to something so simple. Sometimes I, I honestly feel this way. The third point I want to make is this. Why do we need to respond? Why we need to respond? Verse 10, Peter says, Work hard to prove that you are among those guys called and chosen. In other words, we need to respond to honor God's call, to honor the sacrifice Christ gave for our sake... Paul puts it this way in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, I beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling. So one word to summarize why we need to respond. Just one word. Think about this deeply. The word honor. 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 Now, I'm not sure. I, I, I I feel like American culture used to be really based around honor. Since then, in my opinion, we kind of drifted away from that. But a lot of the Asian culture was very strongly based around honor. And that concept can be kind of confusing. So I want to articulate it with this, with this illustration, with this story. I share the story probably, I don't know how long ago, in the communion message. Um, but we could always be reminded of it, correct? And um, I just thought it was super appropriate. I get to flesh the story out a little bit. I heard this story from a man. His name is In Kai. He, um, he started a church planting movement in China. This is probably a decade or a decade and a half ago when God was moving powerfully in China. His network of churches was over 10,000 churches. Not 10,000 people, 10,000 churches. So this was a legendary character uh, among the, the circle of missionaries we were. I went to a training with him, and I got to talk to him, and he's, it's so funny because he recognized me. He knew me. I'm like, how do you know me? He turns out he actually went to school with my parents. He went to seminary with my parents. He's like, I knew you when you were a little kid. I'm like, super bizarre, right? Um... But I got to talk to him. I, I, said, I said, what is the secret sauce to this great fruit you have produced? Of course, his answer was awesome. He's like, there's no secret sauce. It was God. Like, I didn't do anything. It was all Jesus. But he did share with me how he shared the gospel using this story. And I want to share that with you. You guys ready for this story? So in China a long, long time ago, uh, there was a family, and they had twin sons. Okay, I want to teach you a couple words of Chinese today. Um, there was the older brother and there was a the younger brother. The older brother in Chinese is called Gega. Can everyone say Gega? Gega, G-E-G-E, And then there's Didi. Didi's younger brother, okay? Just so say Didi. So you know you learned Chinese this morning. So if you see me running around my little little one, I call him Didi. That's not his name. That's just who he is in our family. He's the little brother. Um, so Gega and Didi. So though they were identical twins, they couldn't be more different in personality and their character. Guga was the responsible one. He was uh, compassionate. He showed empathy. He cared greatly for his parents. He had a moral compass way beyond his year. Didi was opposite. opposite. Okay? He was that kid. He was that kid. He was the bratty, careless one, careless about other people's feelings. Uh, he saw weakness in other people as something to be exploited. He always blamed others for his own uh, mistakes. Um, even though the two boys couldn't be any more different, they got along great. Mostly because Guga just loved his Didi. He just covered him, tried to protect him, tried to teach him right from wrong. However, it didn't really turn out right. As they got older, they drifted apart. Didi got caught. The wrong group of friends went off and just left their family, left his family brokenhearted. Guga, on the other hand, found passion and, and uh, found a passion for justice and for the law. So he pursued, uh, uh uh, uh, career in law. So fast forward a few decades later. D.D., in one of his misadventures, he killed a man in cold blood, and he was apprehended. Now, the country, in the, the law for the country at that time is very simple. You kill someone in cold blood, okay, you're, you pay with your life. Very straightforward. Now, even though D.D. was faced with such a dire predicament, he was hardly repentant. He was still blaming everyone but himself. You guys know people like that. Finally, the day came for Didi to go go before the judge and have his sentence pronounced. And you guessed it, when you looked up at the judge, lo and behold, it was his gaga, who after years of practicing excellent law, showing integrity, showing uh, compassion and empathy with others, the community says, we want to make you our judge. So their lives couldn't be any more different. So he was the judge over his own Didi. Didi at first was so happy. He was so elated. He knew even though he was as guilty as sin, his older brother, who he hadn't seen in decades, was going to take care and was going to hook him up. He just knew in his heart because he knew his brother has always taken care of him. But after all the evidence was given, the judge pronounced his brother guilty, and the punishment is death. Didi could not believe it. He could not believe his own flesh and blood would betray him like this. So even as he's escorted out of the prison, he starts screaming curses at his brother. How could you do this to me? How could you do this to me? His brother just looked on. The night before his execution, Didi had a visitor. And he was his older brother. He was Guga. He came into the cell. And before Didi could say anything, his Guga just held his brothers. Held them. Gave him the biggest hug. With tears coming down his face, he told Didi, I miss you so much. Didi could not understand it. Clearly, his brothers still love him so much. But how could this loving brother sentence him to death? And Guga said to him, he says, I have a plan. I want you to wear my clothes, since we're identical twins. You wear my clothes, and you walk out of here as the judge. Tomorrow morning, when they come and get me, I will simply provide convincing evidence that I'm actually the judge, and they will have to let both of us go. And by tomorrow morning, I want you to meet me outside the city gates, and we're going to celebrate together. Didi was overjoyed. He knew his brother was going to come through for him. So they changed clothes. He left as the judge. The next day, Didi waited outside the city gates. But the brother never came. Instead, a courier came, and he dropped off a letter for him. He took the letter, and he opened up the letter. The letter was from his brother. The letter said this. It says, Didi, please read this letter very carefully. Though you might not want to understand it, you need to know my heart. He said, The night before the trial, when I heard about your case, it was the worst night of my life. On one hand, I was overwhelmed with grief at the atrocity you committed and my allegiance to honor the law to which I was sworn to and to give justice for the man you killed and for his family but also for my own conscience before God and before my community, who entrusted me with this great honor to be the judge. But he said, on the other hand, I was also broken and overwhelmed with compassion and love for my little brother. I tossed and turned all night long, trying to come up with any legal loophole or maneuvering that's going to provide both justice and mercy. And finally, at dawn, I came up with the only solution, the only solution is this, someone has to pay for this sin. He says, by the time you read this le- letter, I have already surrendered my life to pay this price for you. This is the only way. He says, now you have a choice to make, Didi. You now have access of all of mine. You have my identity, you have my house, you have my bank account, you have my resource, my relationship, my authority, my reputation. You are now the judge. My question for you is this. I have given my life for you. Will you live your life for me? See, now Didi has his brother's identity in every sense of the word. When people see Didi, they don't see him as a scoundrel who should have been executed. They see him as the righteous judge. But he has a decision to make. Think about this in all reality. Didi can use the freedom he's been given and indulge in his previous lifestyle. He can use that fat bank account that his brother has and blow it on booze and prostitutes. He can use the power and the privilege that he's been given and use it to take advantage of other people and manipulate people like he's done his whole entire life. But I want to ask you this question the follow him tarnishing, destroying his brother's reputation doesn't that make you sick to your stomach? Doesn't it? Do you know why it makes you sick to your stomach? It's because of honor. That is what honor means. If that makes you sick, as it should, it's because God has put the evidence and the presence of honor in your heart. Or, Didi could choose the more difficult path. He could respond to the incredible integrity and love of his brother and live as his brother would have lived, and to prove that his good, sacrifice were not in vain. You guys remember the movie Saving Private Ryan? You guys know what I'm talking about in the movie? For those who haven't seen the movie, I highly recommend it. It's a, it's a movie that's difficult to watch multiple times because of how powerful it is. But the story is, uh, during World War II, uh, there were four brothers who were sent to fight in the war. And in the process of the war, three of the brothers Were killed. And when the U.S. military realized what happened, they sent this elite group of team to go in there and try to rescue and save the fourth brother. The idea is to bring him home so that this poor family did not lose all their sons in this war. So this team has to go into the middle of battle to try to find Private Ryan and bring him back. And this process of trying to save Private Ryan, this team of brave, courageous men, sacrificial men, one by one, lost their lives. I think there's only two men remaining. And you remember that final scene when Captain Miller, Captain John H. Miller, I believe, played by Tom Hanks, was dying. He was sitting in front of this tank as he was dying. And, 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 and uh, Private Ryan was standing before uh, Captain Miller. And Captain Miller pointed at Ryan. He said this. Remember what he said? He said, earn it. He said, earn it. What he's saying is, Live a good life. Live a life worthy of the sacrifice that was given for you. Now, this admonition was so powerful that even at the end of Private Ryan's life, he had to do an evaluation to see if he lived a life worthy of the sacrifice these men gave. Paul basically described this situation in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, therefore I... A prisoner for serving the Lord beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. See, Paul isn't literally a prisoner of God in the sense of that there's a wrath of God on him if he steps out of line. But he's a figurative prisoner. You know what Paul's enslaved to? He is enslaved to the expressive love of Jesus Christ. His experience of God's redemptive love has captured his life forever so that Paul can no longer live for himself. I thought Private Ryan was, what a great illustration of that principle. After he got out of the war, he could no longer live for his own sake. His life is now lived in the light of the awesome sacrifices these brave men have made. And sometimes we need to be reminded of that. See, we are all Private Ryans. We are all the little brother, the Didi, from the story. Now, the parallel from the story isn't complete because there's some striking difference. First of all, our big brother, he did die. But guess what? He was raised to life again. So, this isn't a tragic ending, this is actually a glorious beginning. And those are big brother. Didn't leave us alone, so we had to figure this out ourselves. Jesus gave us His Spirit to remind us, to mold us, to change us, to shape us, to speak to us, to encourage us, to comfort us, and to unite us with Him. But I hope that in its day, you now feel the weight of why we have to respond. Why we have to respond because of honor, because of honor, that's it. Because honoring what Jesus did, because of our big brother, because Jesus gave us everything. He gave us his identity, he gave us his resource, he gave us his reputation, he gave us his sacrifice, he gave everything for us. So I want to ask you the same question that big brother asked Didi. Since Jesus has given his life For you, will you live your life for him? Let's pray. Lord, Father, Holy Spirit, we just ask that you even now will stir up the hunger we have for your presence, the hunger we have to remain in you. Lord, may we honor your memory. May we honor who you are. May we honor your sacrifices. May we live in light of the great promises you have given us. May we never forget it. May we not be short-minded, short-sighted, or blind, and live for the temporary pleasures instead for the delayed gratification of knowing your presence. God, will you just stir up the debt of honor in our hearts for what you have done so that we will take everything, we will give everything we have, put every effort we have into remaining you. In Jesus Christ's precious name we pray.